Lord this afternoon about Christ's resurrection. And we do so based on the passage passage that's been read from 1 Corinthians 4 and Luke 20. And as those truths are summarized for us as part of a catechism, we cloister that in there. 76 of 1 Corinthians 45, and you can find it on page 541 Christ's resurrection benefit us? First, by his resurrection, he has overcome death so that he could make us share in the righteousness which he had obtained for us by his death. Second, by his power, we too are raised up with new life. Third, Christ's resurrection is to us a sure pledge of our glorious sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ. Ernest Nagel was an American naturalist philosopher. What does that mean, you might ask? Well, that means that he believed that beyond the natural world, outside of nature, there is nothing. He taught that the world ticks and keeps on ticking simply because of the laws of nature. A naturalist is also more or less by default also an atheist, someone who doesn't believe in the existence of any sort of gods and certainly not in the existence of the God of heaven and earth. This world, according to the naturalist, just came to be, just happened to come to be, and this world and this universe is all that there is. About the human life, Ernest Nagel said this, and I'll quote him here. He said, human destiny is only an episode between two oblivions. To put that slightly differently, he would say, your life, my life, according to him, is just an episode, a period of existence between two lots of nothingness. You come from nothingness, then you exist for a while and you go to nothingness. That means, by extension, of course, that this life is all that there is. Once you're done with this life, once you're dead, that's it. You cease to exist. You simply are not anymore. Now, I want you to think of the implications of such a line of thought. You have to wonder what a man like that did it for. What was his purpose? For such a person, everything must of necessity revolve around the present, the here and the now. 
And if there is nothing other than the material world, no God either, then what real moral or ethical standards would there be to live by? Despite the fact that many people today live like that, it doesn't make a lot of sense to live with that worldview. And as as absurd as it is to live, live under that framework, think about this. That sort of view of existence means no belief in the afterlife either. According to that explanation of our existence, after this life there is nothing. But how empty that is. And how sad too. Because the Bible teaches very clearly that after death, everyone, regardless of what they believe in this life, everyone goes on living either in eternal death or eternal life. How much richer, brothers and sisters, to know the gospel of Christ's resurrection and what it means for our life now and what it means for our life in the future and then also how our now life and our future life are wonderfully connected together. They are one because Christ rose from the dead. I'll bring you God's word this afternoon. You can listen to that. Christ's resurrection guarantees our resurrection. And we'll see that our resurrection is both a glorious future reality, that's our first point, and our second point is that our resurrection is also a wonderful present reality. So first of all, our resurrection is a glorious future reality. Among Christians in our day and age, there is a fair degree of uncertainty about that glorious resurrection that our Lord's Day speaks about. And it's true, this is an area, I think, that we have our questions about too. Catechism students love to ask about what's after this life? question like, what's going to happen exactly when Christ returns? Will we all be judged? Questions like, will everyone else know what we've said and done and thought throughout our whole life? And what about those Christians who are already dead? When are they going to rise? And of course, we're not the only ones with questions. As these two letters, and especially the passage we read, makes clear, the Christians of Thessalonica, they had their questions too. And from what we can piece together, it seems that their question related to whether there was any advantage for those who are still alive when Christ comes back, in comparison to those who have already died. We can't know exactly what the nature of their misunderstanding was, but it appears that they thought, the Thessalonians that is, they thought that those who were still alive when Christ returned, when Christ comes back, that those people would have some sort of advantage over those who were, were already in the grave. So in this passage that we read, Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, makes clear that all believers, both those whose body is already in the grave and those who are still alive, will together meet the Lord in the air. That's verse 17 of 1 Thessalonians 4. Both groups too, 
those who have already died, those who are still alive when Christ returns. Both groups, last part of verse 17, will be with the Lord forever. From that, one thing, of course, is absolutely clear, gloriously clear. There is life after death. There will be a resurrection from the dead. We know that in our day, not everybody believed that. Not everyone believed it in Jesus' day either. Take, for example, the Sadducees. We read about them in Luke chapter 20. Verse 27 of that chapter said it. The Sadducees say that there is no resurrection. And like the philosopher in our introduction, they believe that after this life, there is in fact nothing, nothing. And this group, the Sadducees, were part of, and some say they made up of the majority of the rulers of the temple. They had, in other words, significant influence over the religious life and even the political life of God's people. In fact, when the Apostle Paul was called in front of the Sanhedrin, he noted that both parties were present, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. In front of them, he brings up this very issue of the resurrection. It's recorded for us in Acts chapter 23, and verse 6 through 8 says this, Then Paul, knowing that some of them who were present then were Sadducees and other Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, My brothers, I am a Pharisee, the son of of a Pharisee. I stand on trial because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. And then note verse 8, the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection and that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. And in Luke 20, the passage we read, those Sadducees then, they wanted to see what Jesus had to say about the resurrection. They came up with what they thought was a foolproof argument to show that the resurrection from the dead was an impossibility. Referring to an Old Testament law, which required a man marry his brother's widow to keep his brother's name alive, they put before Jesus this, what they thought, this absurd scenario. We read it, and they finish in verse 33, they finish, now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be, since the seven were married to her? They thought they were clever. They no doubt stood back smugly and and crossed their arms and waited for Jesus to say, yeah, I guess there is no resurrection. That makes sense. But of course, Jesus doesn't say that because the resurrection, as Jesus well knows, is a glorious reality. And to deny the glorious future reality of the resurrection is, of course, to deny the gospel. We've got to understand this. If there is no resurrection from the dead, if after this life there is, in fact, nothing, then there is no final judgment either. And if there is no final judgment, then we do not need atonement for our sins, which means the cross of our Savior is unnecessary. If I could put it this way, turf out the resurrection and you're throwing out the cross as well. Paul made it clear in this well-known text, 1 Corinthians 15 verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. But Christ's resurrection is a reality 
And so then too is, of course, the glorious resurrection of all those who belong to him. And then it's good to notice Paul's very careful word usage in the passage we read from 1 Thessalonians 4. In that passage, and maybe you even noticed this as we were reading it, in this passage, Paul does not speak about those who have died as having died, but rather as having fallen asleep. Did you notice that? He uses that phrase a number of times in this passage. And his choice of words is very, very deliberate. And it's wonderfully comforting too. Paul's point is that those whose body had physically died in the Lord are not in fact dead. They go on living and when Christ returns, they will be resurrected, soul and body reunited once more. Listen again to verse 14, because this verse really summarizes a nutshell summary of the gospel of the resurrection in verse 14. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Again, notice the word choice. While speaking to believers who died as those who have fallen asleep, Paul does not use the same phrase in relation to Jesus' death. Did you notice that? He does not say that Jesus fell asleep when he died on the cross. No, says Paul, Jesus died. He really did die. He died the death of being rejected by the Father, and that's the death that our sins deserve. Christ paid that price for us. He really died. But Paul says, he rose again. Once that price was paid, death could not keep its grip on our Savior. That's why our Lord's Day says it the way it does. By his resurrection, he has overcome death. When Christ rose, death was overcome. He rose victorious over death. And that victory over death belongs then also to you and to me and to all those who have gone into the grave before us, who fell asleep in Christ. Paul says that too in verse, verse 14. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Surely that is victory over death, isn't it? To rise from the dead. Also for those loved ones of ours who have already fallen asleep and whose bodies are right now in the grave. Do you have a loved one in the grave? I'm sure that you can picture that burial plot in your mind. Know where their body is. For them too, 
their souls are in heaven. They live, but more, they will return with Jesus when he comes, and then their bodies will then be resurrected, gloriously resurrected. As the Catechism says, the third part, Christ's resurrection is to us a sure pledge of our glorious resurrection. And what about if we're still alive when Christ returns? Will you imagine that? I'm sure more of you will be, but let's sometimes sit back and ponder. We can't help but wonder what it's going to be like when Christ wonder about the excitement of that moment. What will happen to us then if we're still alive? Well, we will be changed. We too will experience a resurrection, a transformation. 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 17, we read it. After that, we who are still alive and and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Or as Paul described it elsewhere, listen, I tell you a mystery, we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. 1 Corinthians 15, 21 to 51. And it's true God has not revealed to us all the details of that glorious yet to come occasion. But what we can say, we say on the basis of God's word here in this passage, and to summarize this and dismiss this, some of us are being probably most alive here and have loved ones who have deceived us those graves open, that grave around which you shed tears, that grave around which perhaps you smiled some wonderful tears, it will burst open. And then together with them, we, if we're still alive, will be caught up into the clouds. And as exciting as it is to think about, that will be just the beginning. Because listen to how Paul finishes verse 17 of 1 Thessalonians 4. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Forever. We will be with the Lord forever. What will that be like? Well, God has not revealed to us all the details can't be sure why that is but Paul certainly gives us some hints and maybe you remember these hints from reading the epistles I know a man in Christ who 40 years ago was caught up to heaven whether it was in the body or out of the body I do not know God knows and I know that this man whether in the body or apart from the body I do not know but God knows was caught up to paradise he heard 
inexpressible things, things that man is not permitted to know. That's 2 Corinthians 12, verses 2 to 3. What Paul is saying here is this. What life forever with the Lord will be like, he says, is inexpressible. Inexpressible. The root word there includes a sense that Paul's sinful human limitations made it impossible for him to even put into words what he was blessed to see. Think about that. The language we use today is it would be impossible in our language to describe the heavens and the earth. That doesn't mean that we can know nothing about that glorious future because a lot has been revealed to us. Jesus himself in the passage we read from Luke 20 not only refuted the Sadducees' argument, but also gave us some wonderful hints as to what that glorious future will be like. And the first thing that Christ tells us there is that there will be no more marriage. Luke 20, verse 35. But those who are considered worthy of taking part in that age and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage. Now we might, if we're blessed with a a wonderful marriage, wonder how that could be an improvement. We treasure and we value our marriages and that's why by God's grace we work on it so hard when it can't go right. We value our marriages. But, and here now is the thing, the relationships we will enjoy in the life hereafter will be far superior to that of marriage. In fact, we need to remember that even in this life, our primary relationship is not the one with our spouse, but rather the primary relationship is the one we have with our Savior. In fact, the often brokenness of our earthly marriage relationships points us to the need of our relationship with Jesus Christ. And in the life after this one, that primary relationship, the one with our Savior, will remain primary. And what is more, it will be perfect, unaffected by sin. And that perfect relationship will then govern all our relationships. Then we will have perfect unaffected by sin relationships with everyone else who will populate the new heavens and the new earth with us. You might not think about it like that, but in the glorious resurrected life, you will be able, listen, you will be able to love the one who is now your spouse better than you can love him or her now. Ever thought about that? And you'll be able to love everyone that way. That's mind-boggling. But that's not all Jesus tells us. He goes on in verse in verse 36. And they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. Like the angels. Death will not have an effect on those who live the resurrected life. That's going to be so, so different from what we're used to here on earth. So much of this life will be affected by death. 
not just the death of a loved one or a friend, but also the suffering and the pain that so often accompanies or leads up to death. And then there is the terrible pain of a sudden and unexpected death without that person. And there's those times when we wish and pray that death would come for a suffering loved one, but it has not. And if there is one word, one word we could use to summarize what so often takes joy out of this life is the word death. Death, you could say, leaves its mark all over life. But wonderful, glorious, death will be an impossibility on the new heaven and the new earth. Christ's resurrection, his overcoming of death is a guarantee of that. You and I can't imagine a world without death, but that's what's waiting for us. That's Christ's, and that Christ's resurrection guarantee of that glorious future is clear from what our Savior says next to the Sabbath people. Last part of verse 36. They are God's children, since they are children of the resurrection. That, in a few words, summarizes the glorious future for each and every one of God's children. We are sons and daughters of the living God because we are sons and daughters of the resurrection. Because Christ has been raised, God will not, will not leave his children in the grave. Death will not forever have its way with God's children. No, they will be raised, brought home to be with the Father forever, even as their soul is right now with the Father in heaven. We think about these things and our minds scarcely take it all in. The wonder of it, Christ's resurrection, the fact that so many people question it, but a reality, a reality nonetheless that guarantees our glorious resurrection. Brothers and sisters, we've been talking about the future, but Christ's resurrection is not just something for the future, it's also something for the here and now as well. I would suggest that maybe we don't think about that enough. We are living our resurrected life just said we are living our resurrected life now. So far we've been focusing on this last part of Acts chapter 245, the glorious resurrection. But the first two parts of Acts 245 talk about these questions. They summarize what God's word teaches us about the resurrection life on this earth. See, death has already been overcome. Death has been overcome already now. And that means that we are living a new life now. And we can really pick up that connection between the next life and this life in what Paul wrote to the Thessalonians. He masterfully and very seamlessly switches from speaking about the future of Christ to the life that the Thessalonians had to live on this side of heaven. As he moves into chapter 5, he makes the point 
that we do not know when Christ will return. We don't know when that glorious resurrection future will become a reality for us. But then he goes on in verse 4 and 5, but you brothers are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the day. You see what Paul has done there? You see this darkness? He's shifting the focus from the future to the present and indicating very clearly that his readers from Thessalonica are already sons of the light and of the day. This is beautiful. This is a wonderful present reality. Christ's resurrection means that sinners like the Christians of Thessalonica, sinners like you and I are in this life already called sons and daughters of the light. Christ's resurrection impacts the present in a wonderful way. How so? Let's try and make this short. You and I are here in church. Most sitting being present in this room. Whether we're listening or whether we're speaking, it makes no difference, does it? We are all sinners by nature. Even little babies, just babies, that we are all, like to, subject to God's curse on sin. But Christ's resurrection means that we sit or stand here or even lay there as redeemed sinners. Today, God is our Father. Already, we have life in Him. Isn't that precisely what God just signed and sealed to little babies? Jesus prayed this in his high priestly prayer. We know this verse well, I think. Jesus prayed this. Now, this is eternal life, that we may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That means this. Understand that if now you know God, if now you know Christ, that means now you have eternal life. This is incredible. Because we fall into sin. You do, I do. But the wonderful present reality is that those sins will not lead to eternal death. They should, but they don't. Scripture is clear. Sin results in eternal death. Such is God's justice, God's anger against our sin. But because Christ has been raised, the present wonderful reality is that that inevitable link between sin and eternal death, that link has been broken. Christ, bursting from his grave, shattered that link for those who belong to him. For Blake too. Oh yeah, we struggle with Christ makes us share already now in his righteousness. We don't belong to the night nor to the day. By grace, we belong to the light and to the day. 
wonderful news. We know with certainty that our sins are covered by Christ's righteousness. That means, again, that the link between sin and eternal death is broken. And we have life now because Christ burst from his raised up to a new life you see with our eyes set on that glorious future with our hearts literally bursting with thankfulness that the link between sin and eternal death had been broken for us we by the power of God's spirit poured out on Pentecost live then a life worthy of that resurrection and that reality Paul writes it to the Thessalonians in verse 6 through 8 of chapter 5. He writes this, So then, let us not be like others. In other words, given what you have, given that already now you're living this resurrection life, so then, let's not be like others that are asleep. Let's be alert and self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, Let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love the breastplate and the hope of salvation behind us. All of us, right down to the Lord Jesus, we know the difference between day and night. We know the difference between life and death. Well, in theological terms, it's the difference between living the resurrected life which leads to that glorious future or living the life in which really you are already living and which leads to forever resurrection. Yes, truly, it's that stuff that we know. Those things associated with darkness that lead to death, life lacking self-control, life Those things are incompatible with the life. They have no place in the resurrected life. Let's put it simply. If God has, in his incredible mercy, taken us and given us a glorious future and a wonderful present reality, if God has taken us in his incredible mercy and given us life and light and eternal daytimes with him. Isn't that wonderful? 
Lord, I give us your truth and your light. And we through you, we through your wonderful resurrection life, we can belong to the heavenly family. salvation Praise God for this grace. Our life today is lived under the care of the resurrected Lord. The Lord who we will one day meet and with whom we will live the glorious resurrected life that awaits resurrection life now. Encourage each other with the hope of that glorious future resurrection. As sons and daughters of the light, let's do that. Let's do that. Encourage each other until we experience the brightness of the new heavens and the new earth where Jesus Christ himself will lead the light. Wonderful resurrection life.